0: All right. Are we all set? All right. So... Hey, it's Martine, and this is Post Reports. It is President's Day. Obama. And our colleague Lillian Cunningham, host of The Washington Post's presidential podcast, has been looking into the changes and challenges of teaching presidential history. She begins here.
1: So we're starting unit two entitled The American Presidency.
0: In an AP government
1: and politics class. One of my favorite topics to talk about, all right, For a variety of reasons. Hi, my name is Michael Martirone. I teach at the Egg Harbor Township High School in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. Who is the first president you remember? All right, Dominic. George Washington. I meant in your
0: lifetime, (laughs) sir.
2: (laughs) I've known Michael Martirone, Mr. Martirone. Since I started making the presidential podcast back in 2016, he reached out to me about using it in the classroom, and ever since, I've thought a lot about the challenges that he and other U.S. history teachers face in trying to educate their students about a subject as big and complex as the American presidency, especially as we see presidential statues come down and legacies come under more scrutiny. So recently, I reached out to talk with him, and he was kind enough to let us eavesdrop on his class. Who
1: is the first president in your lifetime? Uh, George Bush. OK, and what do you remember about George Bush? Um, like the 2008 financial crisis. OK. And um, how old were you in 2008? Uh, I don't know.
2: Four years old. You were four years old. <laughs>
1: Bro, bro <laughs> definitely don't. You do not remember that. <laughs> That's that's like, that's math. I vaguely remember Ronald Reagan, but there's a whole thing that I mean From a teacher's point of view, um, I, well, I approach the presidency in general like this. I have the kids, you know, imagine they're they're taking a picture of history, and you can use one of your three phone lenses. There is the nice portrait lens that you know really sharpens the individual up front and kind of blurs out the background. There is kind of the normal frame where you get a decent balance of what's in the picture and what's in the background. And then there's like the wide angle lens. So what teachers have to learn how to do is yeah we can zoom in on a topic, you know, precisely, but we also have to take a step back and and start to contextualize things. What do you know about presidents? What do you know about the men, not the institution? They're old. What? Yeah, they're all They're all Okay. Okay, here. Okay, they're not. Okay, let's be. <laughs> they used to be all, all old white men. Now
2: we have Okay, so, so. Talking with Michael and listening to his class made me realize I wanted to learn more about the history of teaching history. Do students learn about the presidency today in a way that actually looks a lot like how their parents learned about it decades ago? Or has there been a real overhaul? I decided I should call up three people who I figured would have great insights on this, insights on where presidential studies have been and where they're going. So I called up Barbara Perry, I will press. Uh, Got it. The director of presidential studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center.
3: As you can see, it's my
2: passion. Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University.
4: Well, thanks for uh, having me.
2: And then also Clint Smith,
4: testing, testing, testing. Hello,
2: a former high school teacher and the author of a book called "How the Word Is Passed: A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America." I want to start by having you take me back to your own childhood. When do you remember first learning about the presidency?
3: Oh, that's an easy one. When I was four years old. My mother, she saw a children's book on John F. Kennedy, and she bought it for me. And that became the the beginning of my library on on presidents and uh, American government. Mm. And in first and second grade, if you had a good paper, the teacher would put a stamp. They were in blue, so sort of an outline of George Washington, an outline of Abraham Lincoln, or an actual sticker of a picture of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. And so that made an impact on me. To see that reinforced in school with um, an award being in the shape of a president. Hmm.
5: I was in school, in high school, in the 70s and 80s. And I think where most high school um, textbooks and curricula were on the subject was the president embodied the nation. So you studied a presidency to really understand the figure that came to embody the
4: government I was taught that the the founders and, and those founding presidents were were great men who should be uh, lauded and and showered with with accolades and praise and admiration because they founded the great experiment that that was America. And there wasn't a lot of room for for nuance. Mm. There wasn't a lot of room for telling a more complicated, complex story.
2: That's probably similar to a lot of people's first exposure, right? I'd imagine almost every student in the U.S. learns some quick, uncomplicated version of who these presidents are.
3: Yes. Uh, The research that social scientists have done on young students in the first first through maybe fifth grades, uh, when they're asked about the institutions of government, uh, the first institution they know about is the presidency. Uh, They don't know if anything, about the Supreme Court. They may know a little bit about Congress. But that's the the first thing that they know about our American government, typically, is the president and the presidency.
5: And and it makes sense. It's easier at some level to grasp our country and our politics through one figure as opposed to, hey, let's study Congress with two different branches and, you know, over 400 people in the lower chamber. It, it's chaotic.
2: Yeah, I'm so curious. I mean... Has it basically always been this way? When did it start? When did the presidency become so big in U.S. classrooms and uh, sort of the lens through which students learn about American history?
5: Well, certainly throughout the 20th century, it's been a central part um, of the curricula. The way I think about it really from, let's say, kind of the 1920s and 30s when the universities really form in this country, big research universities. And you have historians like Arthur Schlesinger who are building entire books um, where the president uh, becomes the center of how we understand a given moment in time. And he published a series of books about the New Deal, um, which are written like novels. They're just absolutely riveting. He was one of the people who had romanticized the presidency.
1: Yesterday, December 7th,
5: 1941, a date which will live in infamy. There's a reason that so many people became fascinated with the presidency in the 1940s and 50s. Let there be no mistake, we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. Well. And then the 60s and 70s, all of that is challenged. Today, I'm watching a demonstration against America's policy in Vietnam. The the new left, the baby boom generation, rejected all of that. Part of it was they lived through this decade in the 60s where they saw presidents ultimately not do what they were saying. For the future of peace,
3: precipitate withdrawal would be a disaster of immense magnitude.
5: Kind of the romance with Franklin Roosevelt turned into the nightmare reality of Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. So people who came into graduate school in the 70s, they didn't even want to study presidents.
3: They were recoiling, particularly because of the feminist movement and the civil rights movement, against what was called great man theory of history. Studying the presidency as, uh, as a heroic office with heroic people populating it, and what came after that was what is called social history. And so rather than studying history from the top down, presidents on down to grassroots, social history is the study of the grassroots upward. Social movements in the law, um, women uh, in history.
2: Oh, interesting.
5: And then the next shift happens, my generation in the 90s, we kind of came of age in the Reagan era. Mr. Gorbachev, teared down this wall. At some level for, for my generation, the um, presence of Reagan as a, a almost FDR-like figure for the right, certainly pushed us to think more about the presidency again. Hmm. We saw presidents could have an enormous impact on life, and we wanted to figure out how can you bring political leaders and institutions back into the story in interesting ways. And so I think since the early 2000s, certainly we try to weave the presidency into stories of politics as part of the story.
2: So... The nature of presidential studies has taken some twists and turns. Presidents went from the people to study to being kind of sidelined to a place now where they're part of the story, but not necessarily the whole story. But that's really at the graduate level. Um, What about in high schools? What are we seeing?
3: Probably a lot of it depends on what region of the country they happen to be in. My sense is that at at the Pre college level that the presidents are still studied in this more traditional manner. Uh But the good news is adding more social history to it. And, of course, things like teacher institutes, which groups like the White House Historical Association put on. Uh, and what they find is that teachers are asking for the larger context beyond what had been the, the great man theory of, of teaching about presidents. They want to know about the enslaved people who built the White House perfect example uh, of that. Michelle Obama famously said in uh, one of the convention speeches that uh, she never forgot for the eight years that they were in the White House that every day she woke up in a home, a shrine, uh, a a national shrine, but one that was built by enslaved people. And so the country and therefore teaching uh, is coming, they're both coming to terms with uh, how do we present in the most objective light, and in the most accurate light, the the full picture of these presidents.
4: And you have teachers who now have access to a wider range of books and text, you know, millions of educators who now understand American history as being far more complex and, and robust uh, than maybe they were taught. But at, on the other end, I think you have a lot of people who and we see this you know with the sort of critical race theory boogeyman who are now experiencing what to them feels like an existential threat to their sense of self because to call into question the previous story of America is to call into question who they are and what they have and who they understand themselves to be and so you have these two different poles where you have some teachers who are more committed to teaching an honest uh, holistic history of America than ever before. And on the other end, you have folks who are retreating further back into the sort of comfortable mythology of of this country.
1: So question, how do you define a great president? I'm gonna jumpstart the conversation. How many of you show of hands would say, Thomas Jefferson is a great president?
5: really know much about his
1: achievements during his term specifically okay well what's one achievement misha louisiana Purchase. louisiana purchase jefferson the author of the declaration of independence i don't but he didn't do that when he was president okay fair enough did uh, not do say, like it's hard to determine a president based off accomplishments because a lot of it's like circumstance like the louisiana purchase like it wasn't him who like did that like he kind
2: of just so why don't we zoom in on one president in particular whose story can be told a lot of different ways uh and a great example is thomas jefferson he's a president who you know for a long time was really just celebrated as one of the country's greatest figures um, but who since uh, has come under a lot of scrutiny and i imagine teachers today have to really think hard about how exactly they're going to teach his legacy and you know probably not just teachers right i mean also places like monticello jefferson's plantation uh the the folks there probably have to wrestle with a lot of those same questions i imagine
4: jefferson in so many ways personifies the larger story of america and and some of the contradictions embedded within it you know jefferson is someone who wrote in one document that all men are created equal, and also who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children that he had by an enslaved woman named Sally Hemings. Monticello is interesting because they have evolved and have begun telling a story that uh, includes you know, specific tours on the history of slavery at Monticello, that includes specific tours about the Hemings family. I always remember a conversation I had with these two women, Donna and Grace, at Monticello. And the tour guide had given this sort of 45-minute masterclass of the intellectual inconsistency and moral inconsistency of of Jefferson's uh, life, you know, with regard to slavery. And as I was watching them, their faces began to wilt and their mouths sort of hung agape. And Donna turned to me and she was like, man, he really took the shine off the guy. I had no idea Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea Monticello was a plantation. And these are folks who bought plane tickets, rented cars, got hotel rooms, who came to the site as, as a sort of pilgrimage, to see the home of one of our founding fathers, and had no idea. And I think that that is a lot of people across this country who just don't know, in part because there has been a systemic failure to educate, you know, people uh, on this. And you know, I remember talking with a guy named Teresa. And she was like, sometimes people come and they think we're trying to tear down Jefferson. But we're not trying to tear down Jefferson. We're just trying to tell the truth about him because the truth hasn't been told about him for so long. Uh, and I don't think you would have had a docent at Monticello say that 20 years ago. And it's it's a reflection of how the you know social change and, and the Black Lives Matter movement over the past 10 years has opened up a space in our uh, our social and political discourse.
5: I mean, I think the George Floyd Black Lives Matter Uh, protests and the movement that we've seen um, since 2012, really, when Trayvon Martin was killed. Uh, I think that whole literature, not just the movement, but all the writing, it's been a lot of books and articles to come out of this movement. I think they have pushed political historians to try to integrate race in even deeper ways into their narratives, including of the presidency. You know, you can't just put that as a issue. It's one of the main issues. And Um, that we should push ourselves as writers and as teachers to kind of work through that relationship. We need the teachers to deal with the hot button topics. We need them to incorporate it uh, into the lesson plan. And we need students in a constructive and respectful and civil way to learn, debate, and do assignments on, on all of these questions as they pertain to the presidency.
1: Who is an example of a great president? I was going to say FDR, but he put Japanese people in internment camps, so I don't really consider that great. Okay, so you would put FDR in the almost great category, but you're digging him points because of Japanese internment. Okay, well, let me ask you guys this. What's the role and acknowledgement of men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe? What's the role? How much are we factoring in the fact that they were slaveholders? I mean, on our currency, we have a slave owner.
2: Um, Yeah, you have to draw the line between what is presidential action and what is your own personal action that you would take in your own personal life because the two are different. And I don't like to say this, but a lot of people say that it was normal for his time, so you can't blame him. So where do we go from here? I mean, if history is any guide, it seems like the presidency is going to endure as a subject taught in classrooms. So, I'm wondering what you think the next chapter should be. Are there any other changes you would make to how we learn about presidents?
3: It's a great question and I I'd want to balance the stories of presidents that top-down approach or so-called great man theories to say these people were humans. They had weaknesses and strengths. They had crushing uh, defeats, but they also had magnificent victories. They were um, subject to the, the whims and fancies of human behavior. And to me, that would help to balance great man theory with social history. And by that, I mean uh, not teaching, if we're going to use Thomas Jefferson as the example, only that he was a slave owner we
5: could probably give a more realistic understanding of what the presidency is, which even if it's not as grandiose or romanticized, it's actually a better look. We can talk about what should be in the curriculum. We should talk about how to present the curriculum. But what we really will ultimately rely on are great history and civics teachers who just bring this alive and don't give the students every answer about what did Uh, our history look like, but push them to ask questions of their
4: own. I think when we teach the presidency, we have to center the reality that these were people, right? Which means also that they weren't static, that they weren't flat, two-dimensional static caricatures, that they, like us, might've had a set of beliefs at one point in their lives that they didn't have later in their lives. I think about Lincoln, you know, Lincoln is is such a fascinating historical figure because early in his life he said some pretty terrible things about black people but you know later in his life at the end of the civil war he spoke very differently and so who lincoln was in 1840 1850 1860 isn't necessarily who he was in 1865 which is the same as all of us right who we were 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago isn't the same as who we are now and i think once we Recognize that these are people who, who change and evolve, and and have shift in consciousness like all of us. Um, then, then we can begin to engage the institution they occupy with a different level of of clarity. I just talked to a group of high school students the other day, actually at my old high school, and the, the level of consciousness, the level of, of political uh, wherewithal, uh, the level of, of sophistication with which they are able to talk about different issues across across society is, is remarkable and just so far beyond anything that I ever had. So, you know, me talking about the, the moral complexity uh, and contradictions of Jefferson, they're like, yeah, you know, in, in ways that I never even encountered until my 20s, really. Part of that is because we are living in a moment that has opened up and created space for a new set of conversations to happen, for us to look back at Jefferson, for us to look back at Madison, for us to look back at Washington, for us us to look back at Jackson and Lincoln. I mean, the list goes at at everyone. And to try to see them with more nuance, more complexity, uh, more honesty.
1: So that's something to consider as we're studying this. You know, the executive... Woodrow Wilson says, the executive is only as as big as he or she wants to be. And what we're going to talk about when we look at uh, Hamilton and Fed70, he talks about the energy of the executive. And he's going to talk about, yeah, the president can use these powers to do good. And believe it or not, the president has an ultimate amount of power. And it's he and someday she that can set the tone and the direction of the country. So we're going to get into this as the unit progresses.
0: Lillian Cunningham is a reporter for The Washington Post and the creator of our presidential podcast. If you haven't listened, you should check it out. There are fascinating episodes on the life and legacy of every single U.S. president. This episode was mixed and scored by Bishop Sand and edited by Theo Balcom. Thanks to Barbara Perry, Clint Smith and Julian Zelizer and to Michael Martirone in his entire AP government and politics class
2: i'm riley finn i'm a senior i'm katherine carroll i'm a senior
1: i'm asada kash i'm a senior
0: hi my name is amelia Fidaz
1: and i'm a senior i'm kyle Tavares. i'm a junior i'm camilla alfaro and i am a junior i'm dominic manzo and i'm a senior
2: i'm anna petreska and i'm a sophomore i'm kayla williams and i'm a senior i'm misha galati and i'm a sophomore i'm kira davis and i'm a sophomore
1: all right and we have riley finn doing the backup audio recording for this lesson
0: That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.